Okay, here we are back again. This is Didactic Mind, episode 96, The Way the World Ends. I am Didact, your host, as always. Uh, we are getting close to a, a century of uh, Didactic Mind episodes, actually. And if you, I mean, if you add them all up, there's uh, significantly more than a hundred. If you look at the combined Didactic Mind and Domain Query episodes, it's actually 118 total. Um, it's been a while since I've done a domain query specifically, but, you know, I do those much more rarely even than these regular podcasts. Uh, nonetheless, this is always an interesting one for me, but it does take time. So, you know, me being me, I tend to be a bit lazy about such things and I only really get around to it at certain times. But now that I actually have the time to do it, I might as well get on with it and explain a few goings-on that we have seen over the last few days. It's been a rather busy week for me in some ways and a not very busy week for me in others, which is kind of a paradox if you think about it. But essentially, I mean, I was just absolutely snowed under writing this massive, massive report uh, for a couple of weeks, actually a couple of weekends, and it's just, it's burned me out um, to a degree I didn't really expect. I am absolutely exhausted from from it, and even though I've been getting a decent amount of sleep and I've been keeping up with going to the gym and all the rest of it, I am just tired. And I mean, I really felt it last night. I was in the gym doing bench presses and chin-ups, and normally, you know, bench is, it's not my favorite exercise, deadlifts are my favorite exercise. But when I was doing bench, I was just like, oh, oh this sucks. And I'm done. I'm not even a very good bencher. I mean, my maximum on bench is, uh, what, uh, 230 pounds. So it's like a hundred and some, hundred and a bit kilos, 105, 110 kilos, something like that. Um, I'm not a very good bencher, but uh, no, my, my max on bench is a little more than that. It's about 235 pounds. Anyway, point being, um, I was benching like 185 pounds for reps and I was just like, ugh, this sucks. And I could do 185 pounds easily, no problem. But I was just so tired and mentally you know, fatigued and just not into it. Um, but I hope that will change over the next few days as we come to the conclusion of some projects and some other things. And I have time to devote to things that I actually want to do uh, beyond that. So one of those things that I want to do is give some more updates and more interactions with the users of my Telegram channel. And that's been around only for a couple of weeks now, but it's grown remarkably fast. I'm really shocked. And a lot of the growth actually comes from yesterday and the day before, when our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Voxamort the most malevolent and terrible, shared an article that I wrote on the Russian way of war. And that is directly relevant to what I'll be speaking about today. Because in that article, I pointed out that the Russian strategy of encirclement and cauldron warfare, Katyolnaya Voina, as I call it, well, as they call it technically, and as I explained it, was fundamentally very different from what Western strategists expected. And Vox Day was very complimentary about 
my take on the situation. He even de devoted the bulk of a dark, scre dark stream to it yesterday, which uh, our friend John C911 has uh, very kindly linked to. In he sent me the link, and it's on my site, and I've passed it on my Telegram channel. So if you joined my Telegram channel recently, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining. And as always, a very warm welcome to my Podbean subscribers, my subscribers from the site, everyone who contributes to what I do via comments and uh, in other ways. I really appreciate it. And it's a, a, it is a pleasure to be able to do these podcasts. It's just a pain in the butt to find the time to sit down and do it. But today's podcast is not so much about the specific tactical situation or strategic situation on the ground in Ukraine. It's about the wider geopolitical realities we find ourselves in. So I want to spend about 15-20 minutes going over what I know of the on-the-ground situation. I'll give you some recommendations for people that you can listen to who don't have their heads up their arses and can actually speak with some intelligence and integrity about this stuff. Bear in mind, I don't know that much. Okay, I am... I know what I don't know, and I'm very transparent about that, or I try to be anyway. I don't know exactly what's going on on the Russian side in Ukraine. I am going based on maps and videos and data that I'm seeing from Telegram and from Russian sites such as Ridovka.news. Um, I speak and read some Russian. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I can read a Russian newspaper because I can't. I can listen to clips from Ria Novosti and Zvezda, and I can understand them pretty well, but that doesn't mean that I will get the full gist of what's going on. So I try to pass on what is transparently obvious uh, to my Telegram channel. And again, for those of you who joined Telegram recently, I mean, the channel grew from like 35 subscribers to 95 in the space of 48 hours. That is shocking. It's, uh, it's astonishing to me. Uh, I got like a whole bunch of new subscribers to my mailing list all of a sudden just because of Vox Day's article. And I'm extremely grateful to him for uh, his, his publicizing of my work and for his very complimentary comments about what I wrote on the dark stream. He only really disagreed with me mildly about um, Western objectives in warfare. And he just had a different take on it. And I don't disagree with him at all. I think he's right. And he uh, he spotted something that I had missed. And I think, you know, full credit to him. I mean, he's much smarter than I am. So um, I, I really have a lot of respect for him. And I am very grateful for the fact that he took some time out of his even more busy schedule, because he's even busier than I am, to promote something that I had written. So many thanks to him. Many thanks to you if you've joined through Telegram, and many thanks to everyone who kind of keeps me going, keeps me doing this stuff, because for me, this is fun, but it is also time-consuming. So I appreciate your good wishes, I appreciate your support, and uh, let's get on with what I want to talk about today. So, like I said, I want to spend about 15-20 minutes talking about the situation on the ground in Ukraine, as I understand it, and then I want to zoom out and look at the broader geostrategic picture, and again... Bear in mind, I am not a political science major. I don't do this stuff as my, for my daily bread and butter. It's not, it, that's not what puts food on my table. This is just something that I enjoy doing as a hobby because I can add 
two and two together and come up with four most of the time. And I'd like to think I don't have my head shoved completely up my arse or anyone else's. And as a result, can at least somewhat see clearly what is going on. And I try to narrate that and relate that to people. And what is becoming very, very clear globally is an emerging picture of a fracturing world that is becoming rapidly more dangerous by the day. But that danger also results in substantial opportunity. And it's up to you as an individual, as a sovereign individual, as a man or a woman. I can't imagine I have more than two women who listen to this podcast, but you know, who knows. Um, stranger things have been known to happen. Uh, to make the most of those opportunities when you get them. So, with respect to what we see, how do you take what's out there and establish a firm foundation upon which you can build when those opportunities come your way? Well, I'll try to go into some of that, time permitting, at the end of the podcast. But looking at the picture on the ground, what do we see? Okay. We have had news today, if you look at the Telegram channel, and I'll link to my Telegram channel below, but I get a lot of my information from the Intel Slava Z channel, which is very good. And it looks like the Russians are changing their strategy. They're now moving toward a protracted war. They've kind of given up for the time being on the task of uh, taking Kiev and breaking the government. They're now going to roll up the... Ukrainian armed forces, the VSAU, the VSAU as they call them, um, one sector at a time. And they're going to systematically and methodically destroy everyone um, that can get involved in any of this, that can um, resist or or present a threat to the Russian military and specifically to the Donbass to the inhabitants of the Donbass region. And when the Russians say this, you can take them at their word. They're not dicking around. They're not messing about. This is what they're going to do. Mariupol, if we look at the situation in the south, so let's take a step back. Um, if you look at the maps that are out there, and I tend to post uh, maps from Rydovka.news uh, pretty much every day that I get them. I'm looking at the map right now for the 18th of March. And there are three fronts in the special military operation, as the Russians call it. It's really a combined arms military operation. That's what it is. It's not a full-scale war. Believe it or not, I mean, this will sound ridiculous if you're Ukrainian. I understand that. I Look, I, I get it, right? If you're Ukrainian, you're in the middle of a war zone. I'm not going to tell you you're not, all right? I, I get it. This is a horrible thing to live through. And I don't want to diminish that in any way. This is an awful, horrific thing to have to suffer through. And I am deeply, deeply sorry that the Ukrainian people are going through this. I really am. I wish the war could end tomorrow. But really, it's not a war. Let's let's be objective about that. Let's be honest. It's not a war. It is a combined arms military operation designed to destroy and uh, systematically annihilate the armed forces of another country while leaving the civilian and population structures intact. If you look at the situation on the ground, you have essentially three fronts. You have Front Sever, uh, Front Vostok, and Front Yug, 
north front, east front, and south front. North front has been largely static for about two weeks, which is weird if you think about it. From the perspective of a Western military planner, it's like, well, everything's stalled. Everything's, you know, the, the Russians are stuck. They're, they're obviously not making any gains. Therefore, ergo, they're on their way to defeat. And, and that's a really stupid way to think, in all honesty. That's simply not accurate. The forces there are stalled because the leadership in Moscow has given those forces an extremely clear directive. You are not to destroy the city of Kiev. Why? Because the city of Kiev is like a thousand years old, almost 1200 actually. It's older than Moscow and Moscow is almost 900 years old. Um, the city of Kiev is, is kind of the, the founding, uh, uh, linchpin of, of Slavic history in a lot of ways. This is where the Kievan Rus originated from, this whole area. And, this is where a lot of their power and history comes from. So that front is largely stalled, and yet the people in Kiev should not celebrate. They're surrounded on almost all sides. Gostomil Airport is ta- is is gone. Um, uh, Borispol Airport is gone. The northwest is completely sealed. The northeast is almost completely sealed. There are egress routes from the south and the southeast, yes, but not much. On the southeastern side, uh, the Russians have contested that side of the river and they are capable of sealing the city if they want. They just don't want to right now. Uh, Chernigov and Sumy in the north and northeast, uh, uh, respectively, are, well, Chernigov is completely encircled. Uh, Sumy has been bypassed. It's been left largely alone. Kharkov is the second biggest city in Kiev. That's in the eastern front. Uh, yeah, the eastern front. So turning to the eastern front, what are we looking at? Kharkov, the second biggest city, the home to much of its technical, of Ukraine's technical expertise, much of its industry and economy, is under siege. It is under heavy artillery bombardment, heavy attack, and uh, there's a lot of Casualties. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's it's a it's a bloodbath out there. Uh, it's a very bad situation in in Kharkov. Uh, I have a an acquaintance of mine, um, long story, but an acquaintance who actually went to university in Kharkov, and she's quite uh, she's quite worried, um, and rightly so. Poltava has been largely left alone so far, although Russian forces have been seen advancing in that direction. But right now. Uh, honestly, the northeastern front is quiet. In the east, however, near the territory of Lugansk and Donetsk, the LNR and DNR, which would in Russian, you know, uh, Lugansk Narodnaya Respublika and uh, Donetsk uh, Narodnaya Respublika, the, the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics have retaken the majority of their territory. The Lugansk People's Republic has retaken about 90% of the territory of Luganskaya Oblast, the Lugansk region, okay? In Donetsk, the Donetsk militia have essentially defeated most of um, the people uh, hitting them, uh, most of the Ukrainian forces, um, but they are kind of there is an operational cauldron of Ukrainian forces 
sitting on the territory mostly of Donetsk, uh, but some in, in Lugansk. Now, that force is anywhere between 12 and 22 brigades in strength, uh, which the best figures, I mean, brigade, a definition of a brigade, you know, in terms of men, uh, is a little hard to, to come by. But as far as I can tell, that's between 60,000 and 80,000 of Ukraine's best troops are stuck, completely surrounded, encircled, no way out, no hope of resupply, running out of ammunition, food, medicine, water, everything, surrounded by, on the left, on, on the eastern side, very, very pissed off Russian militias, and on the western side, almost as pissed off Russian professional army. There is no way out for these men. They will die if they do not surrender. 60,000 to 80,000 of them will die if they don't surrender. That is the cream of Ukraine's fighting forces. All right. That's the best that they've got. And it's going to be a freaking bloodbath if they don't surrender. And they've already appealed desperately for help to Kiev. Now, Kiev has said, we can't help. They, they, I mean, they've tried to counterattack and tried to mount counteroffensives. The problem is that the military leadership in Kiev was already totally useless. Um, actually, the civilian leadership and the military leadership. The civilian leadership had no control over the armies, really, before the war started. Uh, and they have no control over the army now that the war is three weeks, four weeks done. They, they just have no effective command and control structure. They never really did. Uh, I was listening to Colonel Douglas McGregor, who's one of the very few voices who actually talks sense in any of this. And he was talking about how the command and control structure in, in Ukraine operates. I, I have great respect for Colonel McGregor, by the way. I hope, um, I'll try to reach out to him, but I, it would be a privilege if I could interview him for the centennial episode of uh, Didactic Mind. That would be really cool. Um, I'll see what I can do. I, I, I'm looking for people to interview for that. And it would be really, really cool to be able to interview somebody like Dr. Sam Bailey or Dr. Robert Malone or uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor or anybody, you know, who, for whom these people for whom I have great respect and who clearly think outside the box. So that encircled force is dead. It's just that simple. It is effectively dead. And Kiev is unable to do anything to relieve it. There, there is no command and control structure left anymore. The Russians effectively destroyed it within the first 48 hours of the war. Now, if you look to the south, the, the southern front is actually where the Russians have had the most success so far. Kherson is liberated. Melitopol is liberated. Berdyansk is liberated. Uh, Mariupol, which is a big city, relatively big city, on the coast of the Sea of Azov, is completely encircled, cut off, surrounded. Within the city limits of Mariupol are about 12,000 or so, last time I checked, and it could be anywhere between three and 15,000, but I'm pretty sure it's about 12,000, or it was, uh, when the battle started. 12,000 or so uh, VSEU, which is to say Armed Forces of Ukraine, and uh, Ukro-Nazi or ultra-nationalist fighters. The, those numbers have dwindled substantially. Most of them have been killed or have surrendered by now. 
The Russian forces have entered the city of Mariupol and are fighting block by block, building by building, clearing out these, these entrenched positions. And they're paying in blood to do it. Make no mistake, they are losing men doing this. There's no doubt about that. The Russians are taking casualties. They're just not nearly as high as everyone in the Western media thinks they are. Right now, they have secured, as far as I understand it, the western half of Mariupol and are pushing into the eastern half. They've secured the western bank. And the remaining forces in Mariupol, according to Alexander Mercuris, uh, have fled to the Azovstal steel plant on the outskirts of Mariupol, about 3,000 fighters left. And I expect the Russians will basically just flatten that area if they are unsuccessful in capturing it, but they want to keep most of the industry intact. Once Mariupol falls, that's it on the southern front. The Russians effectively control the Sea of Azov. The only stronghold remaining for the Ukrainians on the Sea of Azov is Odessa. Odessa is invested on the seaward side by the Russian Navy, who are tying up men in that city to defend against the potential of a Russian amphibious assault. The Russian uh, ships in the sea have Marines on board, and the Russian Marines are, from my understanding, tough SOBs. I mean, you want people dead, you send in the Russian Marines, they'll be dead pretty soon. Um, they understand like American Marines, they understand that they are going to be the first uh, into the thick of the fight. They are rough, tough, on-the-bounce troops. They know what they're doing, and they are a very, very professional fighting force. So that combined with troops swinging down from the east and northeast will probably mean the fall of Odessa within a couple of weeks. Odessa is not encircled at the moment, but it will likely be in the near future. Before the Russians do that, they'll have to go through Nikolaev, or as the Ukrainians call it, Mikolaev. I don't know why, but Nikolaev, as far as I'm concerned, is a much nicer name. Uh, Nikolaev is under assault, but it's not encircled. It won't take long after Mariupol falls for the Russian troops to begin swinging westwards again and start taking those cities. Once Odessa and Nikolaev are done, that's the whole of the Sea of Azov locked up. The Russians have already established a land bridge to Crimea, which they've wanted for a long time. They've re-established the supply of fresh water to Crimea, which they've also wanted for eight years. They are not going to relinquish the Sea of Azov at all. It's theirs. Now, what happens after that? Well, Here's where it gets interesting. If you look at the map of Ukraine, you look at where Russian forces are concentrated, they're not advancing along the Dnieper River. That's the weird part if you're a Western strategist. They're not pushing forth along the Dnieper. Why? Because along the eastern side of the Dnieper River specifically are all of the Ukrainian agricultural fields and farmlands. And the Russians have made it very, very clear that they do not want to interfere with spring planting season. They are not going through the fields. They are not burning anything. They're not wrecking anything. They want Ukraine's agricultural economy to survive, and there's a very good reason for that. Ukraine is the world's fifth, or was, the world's fifth largest exporter of wheat. Russia is the largest exporter of wheat. Russian wheat exports have fallen off a cliff, but they will rebound. Ukraine needs to rebound, but they won't, not anytime soon, not without Russian help.
As far as I can tell, and this is pure speculation on my part, so take it with a big chunk of salt, the Russians are not interested in pushing westward across the Dnieper. They want to secure the eastern sort of 40, 40, so 40 odd percent thereabouts of Ukraine's landmass. The reason they want to do that is because that will go into creating a Novorossiya buffer state. I think we are headed towards the partitioning of Ukraine. And this, incidentally, is the great tragedy of the Ukrainian people. And it's a very, very sad story. And, uh, you know, let me stand up because I can't sit for very long. Right. Sorry if I blew out your eardrums with the sound of me pushing my chair back. But anyway. Um, the great tragedy of the Ukrainian people is that historically they have never actually been a true nation of their own. That's the truth. If you actually look at a map of Ukraine, and I pointed this out in my post about Bandera, Ukraine, and the downside of nationalism, Ukraine, if Ukraine proper is as, as an actual sort of thing, is a, a pretty small chunk of the territory, the landmass of Ukraine today. The reality is that Ukraine is a Frankenstein's monster of a country stitched together from various bits of other countries. Galicia, which is on the Polish border, uh, which is essentially where sort of Lvov and Ivano-Frankovsk and Uzhgorod um, uh, uh, rather are in that sort of area, that 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 borderland, that's that's all sort of Polish and Hungarian and Austro-Hungarian territory. Romania has a number of claims on some of the um, so, sort of borderlands along its border there, sort of around uh, Chernovtsi and uh, bits of that, bits like that. Uh, Moldova has some claims encroaching into that the border area of Ukraine there. All of this stuff, I mean, it's, it's just bits of territories taken away from other, uh, Soviet republics and given to Ukraine or amalgamated into Ukraine by decision makers drawing lines on maps that they didn't really understand the peoples that, that lived there. Which is why, you know, so much of extreme Western Ukraine is actually basically Polish in nature. So much of northern and eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine, for that matter, you know, southeast, southeastern Ukraine is, is Russian, really. The core of Ukrainian Ukraine is just in the center of the country. And most of that is landlocked. So I think we're going to head, if, if negotiations fail this week, I think this week is going to be critical. If negotiations fail between the Russians and Ukrainians, and I expect them to actually, because the Ukrainians are being told by they're puppet masters in Washington, D.C. to fight essentially down to the last Ukrainian. If negotiations fail, then I think the Russians are essentially going to say, screw this, we've had enough. We've given you every possible chance to negotiate an honorable, peaceful settlement to this entire crisis. And now we're going to go in and do exactly whatever the hell we feel like. And whatever the hell we feel like is inevitably going to be something along the lines of um, partitioning Ukraine. And that will be a great and terrible tragedy. Because I know, having seen people that I care about talk about partitions of their countries, that a forcible partition 
inevitably leads to tremendous human tragedy. I remember my grandfather talking about the partition of his time and the bloodshed that occurred in the process and the terror and the horror of those times. And it was bad. I mean, it, it was inconceivable horror compared to what we can understand today. And that is likely to come to Ukraine again. I mean, this is, this is the tragedy of Ukraine as a country. It has always been a pawn of great powers. Ukraine, that whole territory has always sat at the crossroads of a number of empires, whether it's the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth or the Austro Hungarian Empire or the Holy Roman Empire. Um, to some extent, I mean, it's not entirely true, but you know, to some extent, it's, it's always sort of sat in between various empires, certainly the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, the Crimean Khanates, all of that. It's always been a crossroads of empires. And like any crossroads of empires, it has been torn apart by conflict and, you know, uh, the Ukrainians have always struggled for a national identity ever since, which is why you get ultra-nationalist lunatics running the country now, uh, fed and supplied and, and boosted way beyond their, their capabilities by a, an utterly corrupt, demonically infested Washington uh, governing class that thinks that it knows how to run the world better than the, the world's population knows how to run itself. And this hubris, this, this uh, stupidity, is leading to some truly deadly outcomes across all aspects of uh, diplomacy and, and geopolitics. Which leads to the wider geopolitical picture. What would a partitioning of Ukraine result in? Well, it would result in peace, at least to some extent, um, but it would also probably result in a permanent Russian military presence in what would, what, what would eventually become Novorossiya. And it would result in a Russian client state. Now, the Russians do client states a lot better than the Americans do. And they actually understand what it takes to rebuild a country because they've done it. The Americans have, don't have the first bloody clue what it takes to rebuild a country. Every time the Americans have tried, they've failed so miserably that the country ends up being an, an, an unlivable hellhole which is exactly what's happened in, well, let's see, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, uh, now Yemen, where they've interfered as well, Somalia, and can we all, you know, does anybody remember uh, Mogadishu? Um, it doesn't matter where America has gone, every single time it's interfered. Oh yeah, Honduras, Nicaragua, uh, Dominican Republic, uh, Cuba, look at, look at what's happened to Cuba, Iran, you know, every single time the Americans intervene, they make a mess of things. And, um, it's just, it's, it's so stupid when, when, when they get involved, they, they don't understand the consequences of what they're doing. Whereas the Russians seem to be willing to bite off as much as they can chew and only as much as they can chew. But what would a Novorossiya carved out of Ukraine mean for the rest of the world? Well, the immediate consequence is that the Europeans can finally stop pretending, um, that they want to go along with Russian sanctions and can start easing up. The 
here's the reality. I mean, all the European nations jumped on this sanctions bandwagon, but they never actually thought through the results. And they're now paying the price. If you look around, let's say in Pomibastard land, uh, where petrol is now, well, up north, it's what, £1.72 a gallon? Uh, sorry, a litre, excuse me, a litre. So £1.72 a litre. If, if you want that in um, American standard, what does that come to? It comes to, I have to run a couple of calculations here, right, £1.1.719 is what it was, $10.15 a gallon. How are you all feeling about that? You know, in California, in, in California right now, petrol is what, um, seven, eight bucks a gallon, right? You all want to pay $10.15 a gallon? Come to uh, Limey Land. And it's about that expensive on most of continental Europe as well. The Germans are already feeling the pinch. I mean, they're basically saying, I saw a headline on RT.com today. You can access RT if you have a VPN, which, by the way, if you don't have a VPN, make sure you get one. I've got a deal for you. Surfshark is all there, ready for you to go. Uh, you can get around all these restrictions and stupid nonsense that uh, Western governments have imposed by changing your IP address, and I highly recommend it. But if you look at RT, they had an article um, on RT earlier today where they said, uh, basically, um, Europeans are being told to not drive, not to drive their cars on Sundays to preserve energy or something. It's like only an, only a university educated bureaucrat could come up with something that dumb. It's like, do you all not realize that stuff has to move from place to place and that takes gasoline and that takes petroleum i mean you need these things to survive the reality is that these sanctions are hitting europe much harder than they're hitting russia the governor of the central bank of russia uh, elvira nabulina um she's if you actually look at her she doesn't look russian she is russian i mean she's bashkiri she's from bashkortostan which is a, a central asian republic in russia it's it's like uh, dagestan or chechnya it's a republic, it's, it's one of the federal republics of Russia that has its own kind of autonomous government, but on, on all matters of defense and economy, it, it defers to the center in Moscow. So anyway, she's, um, she's very obviously Asiatic looking, and uh, she seemed to be a complete non-entity. And I mean, some, some people have given her some very harsh criticism, like Dr. Paul Craig Roberts in particular. Um, he, he has been extremely critical of Russia's governing class. And I said, these people are like dumb shit Russians. I mean, there's dumb shit Americans, but then there's dumb shit Russians who are um, even more globalist in some ways than the Americans. I think he goes a bit too far. I, I really do. I, I personally think he goes too far in his criticisms of Russia because if you look at what Putin is doing, he's really playing the long game. He's, he's playing a very long calculated game and he understands what he's getting into. He, I think he, even Putin, was surprised at the scale and viciousness of the Western response. But he understands that Russia has the ability to build friends and alliances, to, to make friends and build alliances elsewhere, and doesn't, no longer needs to rely on the West as a partner. I think, if anything, the, the Kremlin was naive, not stupid, but naive in thinking that the West could be relied upon as a diplomatic partner, which is why for 30 years, 
uh, 20 of which Putin was in power, he tried very hard to work with the Western powers under the Western sort of so-called rules-based order. There's nothing rules-based about it. The rules are whatever, you know, Washington bureaucrats say they are, and they change every day, pretty much. But Russia is coming out of this a lot stronger than the West expected, and, and Ms. Nabulina said that. She basically said, look, inflation is going to hit Russia pretty hard. We're going to see a spike in inflation uh, to about, you know, what, 10%, I think is what she said. Um in the next couple of months. It's definitely going to hurt. We're definitely going to see unemployment spike upwards. The The sanctions are going to bite. There's no doubt about that. But it's not anything we can't handle. And that was key. Understand that this woman is an inflation hawk. I mean, much more so than anybody in any central bank in the West. She has a very, very fiercely anti-inflation policy. If I've lived in Moscow for a while, and I, you know, he said, um, go around to different bits of Moscow and on the billboards you would see like advertising for home loans and such, you know, the same thing that you do in the States. And the rates advertised for those loans was like 10 to 11% and that was considered a good rate. That's the kind of rate that the Russian central bank, uh, put up in order to keep inflation at 4% or less. 4% or less inflation is a dream come true for a lot of people in the United States because right now you're dealing with 15 to 20% inflation. Forget what the Bureau of Labor Statistics is telling you. That's garbage. Your real inflation, everyday inflation is running at 15 to 20% right now. You're dealing with runaway inflation. This is, this is the kind of inflation that you see in economies that have completely deranged monetary systems like Turkey, like shithole countries that don't have control over their money. That's what you're dealing with in the States. The Russians are saying we aim for 4% or less inflation, real inflation, not, you know, mismeasured, mismanaged inflation like it is in the U.S. True inflation. So the governor of the Russian Central Bank says these things, and I believe her. I mean, I think she's right. Why is she able to say these things? Well, for one thing, energy prices in Russia don't change nearly as badly as they do in the West because Russia is energy independent. Russia produces heavy sour crude, it's true, that has to be refined and it takes longer to do that. Russia also has very cheap, plentiful natural gas. If you look at the price of petrol in Russia, it's like, well, uh, I think I can look it up, in fact. Um, I did look it up not too long ago. Uh, price of petrol in Russia, yeah, this was a uh, search that I did a while back. Russian gasoline prices in, right, so... Uh, average Russian gasoline price, petrol price, right now, you know, week of, uh, week of 14th March 2022. You want to know what it was? Any guesses? $1.63 a gallon on average across all of Russia. $1.63 a gallon. That's how much the Russians are paying for petrol. Anybody in America want to pay that much? If you're paying $4.40 a gallon, you want to pay $1.63. That's the kind of power that energy independence gives you. And America gave that up under the fake president. All 81 million people who voted for the fake president, many of whom are obviously dead, um, deserve exactly what they're getting. But unfortunately, the rest of the country, which didn't vote for this jackass, are also getting, you know, uh, essentially bent over a barrel. 
this inflation is not sustainable, uh, or it's not tolerable, I should say. It is sustainable because, you know, inflation is essentially a monetary phenomenon. But this is result, this has resulted in a very fragile U.S. economy. And the Russians understand this, they realize it, and they're working to undermine it even further. The Chinese are waiting in the wings. The Chinese understand that their moment is coming, if it hasn't already arrived. They are working with the Russians to integrate their payment systems together. And now we are seeing news that the Saudis and the uh, Emiratis and the Qataris, the Qataris, how you pronounce the name, uh, and the Bahrainis are potentially looking to denominate oil contracts in yuan, not in dollars. To understand the impact of this, you need to understand what the power of the petrodollar is. When you buy oil and sell dollars, right? you give dollars and you get oil, you make the people producing the oil completely dependent upon your currency as their means of transaction. Oil is the single most important commodity in the world. When you consume vast amounts of oil and you pay for it in dollars, the dollar natural, that whatever currency that is, that currency naturally becomes the standard medium of exchange for the rest of the world. That's what the petrodollar is. What the Saudis are now saying by even speculating about the possibility of using petro yuan is that they are willing to reduce their holdings of US dollars, which means they're willing to reduce their holdings of US treasury debt. And they're willing to increase their holdings of Chinese debt and Chinese currency as part of their foreign reserves, their foreign exchange reserves which means that the ability of the United States to trade with its partners around the world is greatly diminished. This is a disaster. Economically speaking, politically speaking, it's a disaster for the United States. If the petrodollar stops being used, the United States becomes a poor country pretty much overnight. De-dollarization has already begun. These sanctions are not hurting the countries that they're targeting. Well, at least they're not hurting the governments that they're targeting. They're hurting the people of those countries, and those countries are learning to become independent. They've already become largely independent. If you look at the countries where sanctions have hit the most, right? Cuba. Did sanctions against Cuba result in regime change? No, they didn't. The people of Cuba have had to adapt, and it's been very hard on them, but other countries don't sanction them, so they're still able to get things that they need. Uh, Iran. Well, the Ayatollahs are still in power 40 years later, so that didn't work. Russia. Russia is the most heavily sanctioned country in the world right now, and they're still surviving as a country and an economy. China. Well, not China, actually. North Korea. North Korea is able to survive because of China, and that's true. North Korea used to be the most heavily sanctioned country in the world, and Russia, you know, more than double the number of sanctions that North Korea has. North Korea is still able to function, sort of. I mean, not well, but they still have uh, the, 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 the Kim family in power. And North Korea is the only example, maybe, of a country where sanctions are sort of effective at hurting the people in power, but not really, because the Kim family is still in power. They're still able to bring in their luxury goods from Switzerland. I mean, what is it that uh, Kim Jong-il used to like to bring in, you know, pornographic films and Swiss chocolates and cognac and whiskey and all this other degenerate junk 
um, while those people were starving in the streets. I mean, that's what that's what these tyrants are like. Russia, you know, Russia is ruled by an autocrat, a, a tsar, and he's not going anywhere. His popularity has risen since the war started. He's now massively popular. He's like 75% approval rating. The, 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 the Western prostitutes, most of whom should be shot as far as I'm concerned at this point, they're all tripping over themselves to say how, you know, at that uh, Luzhniki Stadium appearance that he did, he looked depressed and he looked haggard and tired. And no, he didn't. I watched the address and I understood what he was saying in Russian to some extent. He seemed tired, yes, but who wouldn't be tired? I mean, he's running under tremendous strain. And yet he was definitely there to, to, to show everybody in his country what a strong and united Russia is like. And he was celebrating the, uh, the annexation of Crimea, what the Russians call the independence of Crimea, which you know, in all honesty it, it was. Effectively what they were celebrating on the 18th was the referendum in Crimea where basically 95 plus percent of, of the population of Crimea voted to secede away from Ukraine and join Russia. And there are a lot of arguments that, oh, the, the vote wasn't transparent, it wasn't fair. I mean, the West has absolutely no business lecturing anybody on fair and free elections, okay? I mean, after the joke that was the 2020 election, please don't lecture anybody else about free and fair elections. America doesn't have them. Most of the Western world doesn't have them. Please just, just stop it. This idea that, you know, democracy actually works it's just, it's nonsense. Uh, and please stop insulting the intelligence of the other 7 billion people in the world um, who are, are really sick and tired of these lectures that, that Westerners give us. It's, it's just, it's ridiculous. So what happens when you have a, a world economic system rapidly decoupling from the United States? Well, you have a desperate United States. You have a country that's willing to do anything to preserve its power. And that brings us actually back to Ukraine, weirdly enough. There's been considerable speculation over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, last week actually, that the Russians would stage a false flag chemical or biological, most likely biological attack. And it would probably take place somewhere around Kharkov because that's where the heaviest fighting is taking place. And the Russians would employ bioweapons to annihilate resistance in the city of Kharkov. Well, there are several things wrong with that idea. The first is that armies that are winning and winning well generally don't employ bioweapons on the field in order to make their point. The second is that if you actually look at a map of uh, what's going on, you will very quickly realize that the um, the city of Kharkov is not far away from the Russian city of Belgorod and not too far away from Kursk. Um, bioweapons have a very, very nasty way of blowing back on the people who use them, which is why the Russians aren't going to risk using biological weapons in an area where they already have substantial concentrations of their population. Third, the people who are funding bioweapons research in Ukraine are not the Russians, they're the Americans. Now, America refuses to admit that that's what's happening, but 
when Victoria Newland go went up in front of little Marco Rubio and basically admitted outright, yeah, actually Ukraine has bio biological research labs, and we're afraid that some of the samples in there might get out and fall into Russian hands, and that's kind of scary. Well, essentially what she's saying, without saying it, is that the United States is funding some sort of bioweapons research. And this is not new. I mean, Senator Dick Luger of, um, I think it was Indiana, I, I can't remember the names of these minor politicians, but he, uh, he went to Ukraine in 2010, I think, to celebrate the uh, opening or to, to you know, participate in the opening ceremony of uh, a level three, I think, uh, biological research lab in Ukraine dealing with some very dangerous pathogens. And the Russians have presented clear evidence showing actual presence of bioweapons, you know, dangerous biological agents in Ukraine. And that some of these biological agents escaped and infected people and livestock in Russia and Poland. So we have a very, very febrile and uh, nasty situation. I do think that the, the Americans will create a false flag operation of some kind. I'd say the probability is 40% or higher at this point. And if that happens, God help us all. Because... The appropriate response for a biological agent unleashed inside of a sovereign country in when, when there's a war on is anything up to a low-grade tactical nuclear strike. If that happens, the Russians aren't going to... They're just not going to fool around. That means nuclear weapons and hypersonic... You know, launched using hypersonics, um, which they, they've essentially tested the Kinjal... Uh, today, I mean, they, they actually fired a Kinjal at an underground munitions bunker full of um, artillery and aircraft munitions in western Ukraine and, you know, blew it all to hell. Um, but it was underground, which is why they used the Kinjal, a deep penetrator effectively, at hypersonic speeds. But if that happens, then you can count on Russian hypersonic missiles and nuclear warheads hitting uh, air uh, airfields and naval facilities and troop bases in Poland and Germany and any other belligerent that uh, Russia considers to be fair game. And then it really is nuclear World War Three. Is the United States crazy enough to do that? Well, its political leadership certainly seems to be. Certainly seems to be insane enough to be willing to risk open nuclear war. If that happens, well, been nice knowing you folks, because we'll all be dead at that point. I'm just, I'm, I'm just telling the truth. We'll all be dead. Um, and much of the world will be, or, or much of the, the Western world at least, and what we call the Western world, will be an irradiated wasteland. And Moscow itself may well be wiped off the map, which is horrifying to me personally, because... I have personal interests there. I have a personal stake in all of this. So I'm not talking lightly about the prospect of a nuclear war. I mean, I, I want this to be avoided at all costs. But if a false flag occurs in Kharkov, which is where I expect it to occur, all bets are off. And if a nuclear strike results as a, results from it, like I said, been nice knowing you. Been fun. Beyond that, what we're looking at is the utter destruction of the American empire. And as far as I'm concerned, it can't come soon enough. I mean, European nations are making noises about 
increasing their defense spending and they're running scared of, of NATO um, not having the capability to defend them from those evil Russians. Well, as Colonel Douglas McGregor pointed out in, an, in a, one of his uh, conversations in an interview, uh, and I'll link to some clips of his which are very good, it takes about 10 years of concerted effort to rebuild a military, an effective one. It takes at least 10 years. And it's not just a matter of buying weapon systems. You also have to put in place the procedures and the training and the personnel and the, the codes and the laws and the regulations and the command structures, especially the command structures, and the instruction and the, the whole network of things that you need in order to maintain and supply and uh, treat, uh, train and, and, and deploy a really effective military. And you can't do that easily. Just ask the Prussians. I mean, they got utterly destroyed in the Battle of uh, Jena Auerstedt in, I think it was 1806. It took them the better part of 20 years to rebuild their military. And it took them another 50 years before they were able to reunify most of Germany uh, and it took them another 70 years before they were able to defeat, like 70 years total from Gina Auerstedt all the way through to um, the, the Treaty of Treaty of something or the other, I forget exactly which one, um, to the point where they were able to cut off and isolate France and defeat and destroy the French army completely to the point where they were able to make France sue for peace and on very onerous terms and were able to completely isolate France under Bismarck's chancellorship. That's how long it took. It will take Germany a minimum of 10 years to rebuild a strong military. And remember, they're starting from the point where they have the third best military, you know, quote unquote, best military in Europe uh, after Ukraine, which got his butt kicked within 48 hours and Britain and France to some extent. But France, you know, France is a, at present is basically a third rate power. Germany may be buying F-35s and M1 Abrams and, and well, they don't need, not M1s, but F-35s for sure, because uh, they have their uh, Leopard 2s and those are very good. Uh, but they're buying all these weapons systems. Well, okay, you have the systems. Do you have the systemology? You, you, they don't. They, they're still, you know, bringing in recruits to train with broomsticks painted black rather than actual rifles. I mean, that's a joke. That's a joke. There's no way that you can argue that the, the, the Germans are capable of, of doing this stuff in any reasonable way. They don't have a standing functional military. Their military is an utter and total joke. And they're saying they're going to rebuild it. Well, no, they're not. They're not anytime, not anytime soon. NATO is a paper tiger. The only people in all of NATO who probably have real fighting ability are the Poles. And the Poles absolutely hate the Russians. I mean, the hatred of Russia in, in Poland is like, is, it's, it's, it's visceral. It's gut level. But is Poland willing to risk open war with Russia? I don't think so. I, I seriously doubt it. What you have, therefore, is a very toxic, very explosive combination. And the United States may well decide to light a match under all of that. And if it does, God help us all. You know, say your prayers because at that point it's all over. Um, who knows what could result, but I will say this, the end of the United States as a world power is drawing near. And I was listening to President Reagan's speech, um, back when he was just Ronald Reagan at the 1964 
Republican National Convention, October 28, 1964. And it's a magnificent speech. It's called A Time for Choosing. We all know it. And he uttered these amazing words. Uh, he, he basically said, uh, it's been said that if we lose this way of freedom of ours, and in so doing, uh, if we, what was it exactly he said? It's been said that if we lose this, and in so doing, lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. And that's exactly where America is right now. That's exactly where it is. America in 1990 was the preeminent world power. There's absolutely, unquestionably, no doubt as to America's authority and you know, both moral, economic, military authority in the world. There's, you couldn't even think of a world without America. It was the essential nation. It truly was the victor in World War III, the, the unfought World War III. It had defeated communism. And there are a lot of people on the left who will say, yeah, no, Reagan didn't defeat communism. No, he did. He actually did. He, Reagan got the communists, he got the Soviet Union to the negotiating table by body checking them and forcing them to negotiate, by attacking them where they were the weakest and forcing them to the table. Because if you look back in history, if you look back at the 1970s, the Soviets looked like they were on the offensive. They looked like they were winning all over the place. I mean, they were making Carter look stupid on a regular basis. They were looking forward, look stupid every day of the week. The Soviets were not brought down just by Reagan. They also had a lot of internal contradictions to deal with. But it was Reagan's war that brought them to the negotiating table because he attacked them where they were the weakest. Russia and China are now attacking America where it is the weakest. And I don't think the Americans have the first clue of what's in store for them. America doesn't understand what America is. America is confused about what it is. Americans don't know who they fight for anymore. I'll close with one piece of advice to my American listeners, of whom there are many. Look at what the Russians are doing and understand why they're winning. There is no confusion among Russians, whether they support the war or are against it, doesn't matter. There is no confusion whatsoever among Russians as to who they are and what they stand for. They are Russians, and they will fight and bleed and die for Russia, for the Rodina, for the fatherland. Americans don't understand this. So if you want to succeed in survive in the days ahead, find out what you stand for. And that has to start with God, and it has to, be, it has to continue with your family, and it has to end with your community, not America the country, because that's broken and irretrievably corrupt. The government is corrupt and evil beyond measure. And be willing to dig your boots into the soil of your native land and bleed and die for it. And only then will you be able to build for the future. And that's the truth. That's what the Russians are willing to do. That's why they're fighting this war. And that's it for me. I am pretty much out of time and I need to go smash my fists and shins into something now. So this has been Didactic Mind episode 95. 
the way the world ends. I am Didact, signing off.